From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing, Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance, and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. The unmissable news stories of the day. This is the Beijing Hour. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour. One hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host, Shane Begum, with you on this Friday, November third, two thousand twenty-three. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, the Israeli militaries encircled Gaza City as Hamas hits back with hit-and-run attacks. Several foreign leaders are visiting China with more on the way ahead of the annual import expo in Shanghai. The UN General Assembly has once again voted overwhelmingly against the U.S. trade embargo on Cuba. In business, the exhibitors are ready for the upcoming China International Import Expo. In sports, some bogey-free action at the 28th Volvo China Open in Shenzhen. In culture and entertainment, the second Guilin Art Festival in southern China. Now the day's top stories. The Israeli military says its forces have encircled Gaza City, but Hamas has resisted their drive with hit-and-run attacks from underground tunnels. A military spokesperson says a ceasefire with Hamas is not on the table. Gaza officials uh, say an Israeli airstrike on another refugee camp killed at least 15 people on Thursday. The violence has killed more than 9,000 people in Gaza since tensions flared up in early October. And Israel's reported over 1,400 deaths. Meantime, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken's on a visit to Israel where he'll discuss steps to minimize harms to civilians. The U.S. House has passed a Republican-led aid bill for Israel worth $14.3 billion U.S. dollars, but Democrats insist it has no future in the Senate and the White House has promised to veto that bill. Sam Mednick reports from Jerusalem. 
Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu met with elite forces. He said there had been some excellent successes, and he said that nothing will stop them. Israel hasn't given a lot of details about its offensive and has shied away from calling it a full-on invasion. However, they had said that they have sent in troops and tanks and special forces and bulldozers, all accompanied by air power that they say are going to help its offensive. Israel has said that there are two main objectives for going into Gaza. One is to obliterate Hamas, they say. The other is to get back its hostages. There are some 240 hostages that are in Gaza. They were taken when Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. Right now, it appears that Israel's coming at its offensive from three different ways. One is from the northeast of Gaza. The other is from the south of Gaza City, so they can cut off that north-south access. And the other is from the northwest of Gaza. Israel is also using air power in its operations in Gaza, and some of that air power has hit the Jabalia refugee camp earlier this week. Hamas said that hundreds of people were killed. It's unclear what the exact death toll was. Israel said that Hamas was using that for their operations, and they were using civilians as human shields. While people were still looking for survivors and digging family members out of the rubble, Israel struck another refugee camp on Thursday south of Gaza City. President Joe Biden made suggestions that there should be a humanitarian pause. This is in order to get aid into Gaza and to allow foreign nationals to get out and potentially allow time for more hostages to be released. But the United States has not called for a ceasefire. However, there has been increasing push for there to be this pause in order to alleviate the crisis in Gaza. Let's listen to what Anthony Blinken had to say. We will be talking about concrete steps uh, that can and should be taken to minimize harm to men, women and children uh, in, uh, in Gaza. Israel has not only the right but the obligation to defend itself and also to take steps to try to make sure that this never happens again. We've also said very clearly and repeatedly that how Israel does this matters. Even though Israel has told people to move from the north where these attacks are taking place to the south, Hundreds of thousands of people still remain in schools, in hospitals, and in shelters. Aid groups are saying it's becoming increasingly impossible to get assistance in and for people to get out. That was Sam Mednick reporting. Reports say the fighting in Gaza has displaced at least 1.4 million people. Many believe the real number could be higher, with United Nations schools in the region overflowing with Palestinians who fled for their safety. Noor Harazin has details. Some UN schools stopped uh, receiving any families. If a family evacuated from northern Gaza seeking shelter in a UN school in southern Gaza, uh, they will not allow the family in because all the classrooms, even the uh, play yard uh, is uh, full of families. Uh, but now we can clearly say that the uh, Gaza Strip is separated. Northern Gaza is separated uh, uh, from southern Gaza, so no more people will be fleeing. Uh, now the Israeli forces started attacking and shooting at uh, cars that takes the road. The uh, Actually, there is two main roads from northern Gaza to southern Gaza, uh, Al-Rashid Road and also Salah Road. And on both roads, the uh, Israeli forces shot towards cars. Actually, uh, several people were killed and many were injured. And this is a clear message to the Palestinian people that they should stop using these roads and the Gaza Strip is technically uh, separated into two halves, northern Gaza and uh, southern Gaza Strip. That was Noor Harazin reporting. 
United Nations experts are calling for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza, saying that time's running out for Palestinian people at grave risk of genocide. Aid to Gaza has been slow since Israel began bombarding the densely populated enclave. The World Health Organization says health needs in Gaza are soaring, while the ability to address them is plunging. The UN and Gaza hospitals have warned that fuel supplies are quickly dwindling, threatening medical and humanitarian operations. On Thursday, the chief of Israel's armed forces signaled willingness to ease the fuel embargo on the Gaza Strip, saying that if hospitals run out of fuel, they could be resupplied under supervision. But Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu later said that Israel has not given approval for fuel shipments. Many Israelis have gathered in Tel Aviv, urging the government to save the hostages held by Hamas. Meantime, tensions between Israel and Lebanon are rising. As Lebanon's Hezbollah says, it's launched over 100 attacks targeting 19 Israeli army positions. The Israeli army says it's responded with airstrikes on Hezbollah targets, along with tank and artillery fire. Stephanie Freed has more. Loved ones, families, supporters, hundreds and hundreds of people who are protesting, they're saying, we want, we want them to come home. We want the people back who are being held in Gaza. They've had no word from, uh, from, certainly from Hamas. They don't know how the hostages are faring. They've asked for that repeatedly, that the Red Cross be given uh, access to the people being held. There has been protest and pushback against that within Israel society of some of the violence, some of the unvetted settler violence that's happening in the West Bank um, against Palestinians who are living there, um, push back against that, angry voices here against what's happening there because it endangers the citizens of Israel as well. Activity on the northern border remains, um, anti-tank missiles being fired, mortars being fired, Israel responding as well, missiles fired from Yemen by Iranian-backed Houthi rebels. Israel has intercepted those missiles, but another reason the U.S. Secretary of State is believed to be arriving in Israel on Friday is to discuss opening of these fronts. We're waiting for Hezbollah's Hassan Nasrallah to make a speech. We understand that militants have come across from Iraq, Iranian-backed militants from Syria, made their way into Lebanon. The implications there, possibly waging another front against Israel, the implications are clear. That was Stephanie Freed reporting. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi has called for a de-escalation of the ongoing conflict and a humanitarian truce in Gaza. He made the remarks in a phone call with Foreign Minister Ayman Safadi of Jordan. Wang said that China strongly denounces attacks on refugee camps in the Gaza Strip, adding that the lives of the Palestinian and Israeli peoples are equally important. The senior diplomat also stressed that China appreciates Jordan's efforts and positive role in promoting peace talks. He set up more authoritative International Peace Conference should be convened to reach a new consensus on a two-state solution. Safadi thanked China for upholding fairness and justice on the Palestinian issue. And he said Jordan calls for an early ceasefire and the free delivery of humanitarian aid to Gaza. Safadi also said Jordan's willing to work with China to promote the implementation of the two-state solution and safeguard regional peace and stability. Coming up, foreign leaders visiting China. Dive into news like never before with Deep Dive, the podcast from CGTN Radio. Join our global reporters for captivating stories and thought-provoking conversations. Search Deep Dive on your favorite podcast platform and get ready to dive in.
It's 10 minutes past the hour. Greek Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis is on an official visit to China at the invitation of Chinese Premier Li Chung. Uh, meantime, Cuban Prime Minister Manuel Cruz is uh, also in the country for a week-long trip. It's his first time in China since taking office. Yang Chengxi has details. Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis of Greece is leading a delegation consisting of several senior Greek officials and a consortium of business leaders, among which many will participate in the upcoming China International Import Expo in Shanghai. Now, during the visit, an agreement on aviation cooperation between China and Greece is reported to be on the agenda. Now, Mitsotakis' visit can be viewed as a significant step in furthering the already fruitful cooperation between the two countries. Now, Greece, being a fast growing economy within Europe is to engage in discussions with China on how they can collectively achieve mutual development in the future. Now, this is an auspicious time for Greece as it is emerges from a decade-long debt crisis. In 2022, Greece experienced a remarkable economic growth rate of 5.9%, surpassing that of the European Union. The trade volume between Greece and China, on the other hand, has also seen considerable growth, with a 14% increase recorded in 2022, reaching new heights. The Cuban Prime Minister is the first high-level political figure to arrive in Shanghai ahead of the China International Import Expo, which he will participate. Now, recent years have seen consistent participation from Cuban companies at the world's biggest import trade fair. Now, during the previous expo in 2019, China and Cuba signed over 10 cooperative deals aimed at boosting imports of lobsters and other seafood to the Chinese market. Cuba's par partnership with China's uh, Belt and Road Initiative in 2018 further solidified the bilateral relationship. The collaboration between the two countries has expanded into various sectors, including infrastructure, renewable energy, healthcare, and education. It is worth mentioning that this is Marrero's first visit to China as the Prime Minister of Cuba since taking office in 2019, as the position was reinstated after more than 40 years. According to China's foreign ministry, Marrero will also meet with Chinese government officials during his trip. That was Yang Chengxi reporting. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's upcoming visit to China has sparked hope for a more harmonious China-Australia relationship. And she just spoke with some uh, young individuals to learn about their expectations for bilateral ties. While trade disputes between China and Australia persist, people-to-people -people exchanges between the two nations continue unabated. Australia has long been a favoured destination for Chinese students and travellers, and many who have lived in the country fondly recall their experiences. Sometimes I may miss their accent. I know it sounds a little bit weird, but like Dada, Brecky, Arvo, Maccas, and everyone calls me mate. I miss the sky in Melbourne, and it's so low that you feel like you can touch it with your hand. I really miss the street artists on Swanson Street. I like the chill vibe they created. In Beijing, a man who lived in Australia for six years has opened a cafe to bring the taste of Australian-style lattes to the locals. While inside, customers are immersed in an Australian atmosphere with koala dolls, lush green decorations, and a wall adorned with images featuring the natural beauty of Australia. The staff recommends trying a flat white, a popular choice among Aussies. Oh, 
A flat white has a smoother taste, and it's a favorite among those who have returned from Australia. They often order it to see how it compares to what they had down under. We are thrilled to hear that many say it's nearly identical. For Australians, they also have high hopes for increased cooperation between the two countries. A study conducted by Curtin University in Perth shows that trade between Australia and China has provided measurable benefits to Australian households, bringing an additional $2,500 Australian dollars to each household in the last financial year. And according to China's customers' data, bilateral trade in the first quarter jumped 20% over the same period last year. Businessman John Smith from Sydney has been running a clothing business with Chinese partners, and he shares his personal connections with China. I do still keep in touch with a couple of my Chinese friends, and the the relationship and the friendship is great. Everything like that is still intact.、Uh, the food experience is obviously amazing. On the Australian Prime Minister's trip to China, Smith believes that his business will benefit from these political interactions. I definitely think that it is good to strategize upon building good relations in terms of creating opportunities for smaller businesses to obviously prosper and start to ramp up. The Sydney businessman also expects the two countries' leaders to rebuild a mutually beneficial relationship. We're basically next door neighbors, and we need to work together. We need to set aside our differences. We need to stop. Putting these taxes upon each other because at the end of the day we want to supply China our quality goods, wine, lobster, seafood. We we have high quality exports. We need China as much as China needs Australia. That too. Prime Minister Albanese will arrive in China in the coming days. It's the first visit to China by an Australian Prime Minister in seven years. As two major countries in the Asia Pacific, many expect that Albanese's dialogue with Chinese leaders will also draw worldwide attention. For the Beijing Hour, I'm Siju. Japan's again started dumping treated nuclear wastewater from its wrecked Fukushima power plant into the Pacific Ocean. This is the third round of release since August, and China has repeatedly expressed concerns over the process. Chen Zhiyuan has more. It was irresponsible to ignore international and domestic opposition to releasing treated radioactive wastewater from the damaged Fukushima nuclear power plant. That's the response of China's foreign ministry to questions from journalists in Beijing. The recent incident of radioactive wastewater being splashed onto workers at the Fukushima nuclear power plant is yet another example of TEPCO's problematic internal management and habit of deceiving the public. It makes people doubt once again the credibility of Japan's purportedly safe and transparent discharge plan. Neighboring countries have expressed their concern, and one former Fukushima employee is speaking out about the conditions at the plant. The individual, who wished to stay anonymous, says he developed leukemia after exposed to the radioactive working environment. His image and voice have been modified to protect his identity. The working environment is worse than I thought at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant. According to the regulations, we have to wear lead uniforms at work. When the protection suits are not enough, they still ask us to work without any protection. He says equipment to measure workers' exposure to radiation at the plant also didn't appear to be working properly. When I was working with others, my meter showed 0.3 millisievert, but the one next to me realized his meter showed nothing. Obviously, his meter was broken. 
The International Atomic Energy Agency says it's aware of China's concern, but that no issues were observed during the first two batches of wastewater release from the Fukushima power plant. China banned imports of Japanese seafood when Japan began releasing Fukushima wastewater into the sea in August. That was Chen Ziyuan reporting. Concerns are also running high in the island nation of Sri Lanka, where a local biologist is warning about the unprecedented consequences to the global environment, animals, and human beings. Uh, Risha Kanduja has more. Despite objections of a possible looming disaster, Japan started releasing radioactive wastewater. Samantha Gunasekra, who leads the first biodiversity protection unit in Sri Lanka, shares his meaningful insights. In the case of Fukushima wastewater releasing, it could be harmful to anybody around the Japan or Pacific Caution. The cross-border transaction could be happen even the long distances. We can see the Chernobyl blast in Russia. But when we test radioactive level in milk food and many trans-traded goods, we detected very high level of radioactive even after five, six years. In this case, untreated water could be deposited in the seabed, so on the non-living organism as well as living organism, especially the microorganism. So through the microorganism, it could be transmitted to the algae, other organisms, then fish, mollusks, after that birds, mammals and all the organisms. Therefore, it could be harmful to all the animals and the living organism through the food chains it may affect to the humans as well. Seafood exports are a fraction of Japan's total exports. We have seen recent bans from major economies at the international level. The release of water from the Japanese nuclear plant has already caused the price of produce from surrounding coastal areas to drop. Fisheries traders are anxious. Ken Oshima is worried that if people stop buying fish from Fukushima, he will be out of a job. Prices are already down at auction for fish traders. Our family eats seafood from Fukushima all the time. But now I hear people say that they won't buy it. They certainly don't want to give it to their children. And if people stop buying fish from Fukushima, I'm out of a job. It's just like dumping an atomic bomb again. The communities, fishers and local will be affected largely. The decision is futile in the short term, though dangerous in the future. Fishery generates a good amount of business in Japan and that will be affected. Or it can lead to food poisoning or the quality of fisheries will deteriorate. Treatments, technology and transfer all is happening with Fukushima nuclear plant. Slums and trade and agony among the communities can be heard and seen. Despite public advertisement campaigns about safety, along with sharing real-time data on water's radioactivity levels, hasn't benefited much. But attracted critics because environment is the home for all, but not for an individual. For the Beijing R, I am Richa Khanduja. Coming up, the UN General Assembly rejects the US trade embargo on Cuba. Climate Watch is CGTN Radio's new podcast focusing on the impact of climate change. We have conversations with people on the front line about this critical issue. Listen to Climate Watch on all major podcast platforms and join us in taking action to save the planet we call home. At 21 minutes past the hour, United Nations General Assemblies voted overwhelmingly against the U.S. economic and trade embargo against Cuba, which was first imposed in 1960. Nine, or 187 countries voted Thursday to end the sanctions, while the U.S. and Israel voted to continue. And Ukraine was the only country that abstained from the vote. Luis Chirino has more from Havana. 
This is the 31st year in a row that the international community has overwhelmingly demanded an end to the U.S. embargo against Cuba. The resolution is not legally binding or enforceable, but it does reflect world opinion. Cuban Foreign Minister Bruno Rodriguez says the more than 60-year blockade violates the rights of all Cuban men and women, depriving families of basic goods, including food and medicine. Entre el primero de marzo. From March 1st, 2022 to February 28th, 2023, the damage inflicted by the U.S. blockade translated into more than $4.8 billion. That is $405 million per month and $1 million every two hours affecting the lives of the Cuban people. During debates prior to voting on the Cuban draft resolution, representatives of nations and regional blocs like the G77 and the Caribbean community urged the U.S. to lift the embargo. Other speakers from Asia, Africa and the Caribbean denounced the long-standing U.S. policy for violating the Cuban people's human rights, the U.N. Charter and international law, and urged the United States to immediately lift its embargo. Bruno Rodriguez said the U.S. restrictions are an act of economic warfare that violates human rights and affects all areas of Cuban society, including education, health care, energy and finances. Many experts say the U.S. embargo has not achieved its goal, toppling the Cuban socialist government. Instead, it has only brought hardships to the Cuban people. That was Luis Chirino reporting. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has hailed landmark agreements and progress on global collaboration around artificial intelligence as the first AI safety summit came to a close in London. On, the, uh, on day one of the event, leading AI countries agreed to the Bletchley Declaration, which called for safer and more responsible development of AI. China attended the summit, saying that it'll back global consensus on AI. And Paul Hawkins takes a closer look. The Bletchley Communique, which uh, called for global cooperation on tackling the risks and uh, AI should be kept safe in such a way to be human-centric, trustworthy and responsible. A significant summit, a significant declaration, not least because all 28 countries, including China, have signed that agreement. At the end of the day, Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, gave a press conference and significantly he said that there was an agreement amongst like-minded countries, that term again, to work together on testing AI models for safety before they are then released by the companies. Uh, the question is in the wording, which is that everyone agrees there needs to be a global framework, everyone needs to be, uh, agrees there needs to be rules around regulating AI, and indeed the United States is legislating for that, so, are the e so is the EU, uh, China has already. The UK though, Rishi uh, Sunak uh, talks about light touch regulation and that before legislation you need to understand the technology first. So an agreement that we need to get to a global framework on AI, but the question is how are we going to get there collectively because each country, uh, or in the case of the EU, the block, uh, a block, uh, everyone wants to tread their own path differently. That was Paul Hawkins reporting. Also at the summit, Tesla CEO Elon Musk called on governments around the world to play their roles when public safety faces risk posed by artificial intelligence. He made the remarks during talks with UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak at, a, at the Global Summit on AI Safety in London. So, um, you know, for really for the vast majority of software, um, the public safety is not at risk. I mean, if, if the, if the uh, app crashes on your phone or your laptop, it's not a, a massive catastrophe. Um, but when you're talking about digital superintelligence, I think, which 
does pose a risk to the public, then there is a role for government to play to safeguard the interests of the public. Hamas has also thanked the British side for inviting China to the summit, adding they should thank China for attending. When I was in China earlier this year, the, my main subject of discussion with this, this, the leadership in China was AI safety and saying that this, this is really something that they, they should care about. And um, they took it seriously, and, and, I'm, and, um, and you are too, which is, which is great. Um, and having them here, I think, was essential, really. If they're, if they're, if they're not participants, it's, it's uh, pointless. Well, China sent a delegation led by Science and Technology Vice Minister Wu Chaohui uh, to the Bletchley Park Summit. The United States is set to announce new development financing for countries hosting migrants in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, this comes after thousands of migrants gathered in southern Mexico on Wednesday, calling for passage through the country to the United States. Frank Contreras reports from Mexico City. This is one of the largest groups of migrants traveling through Mexican national territory so far this year, according to Mexican immigration officials. Many have been traveling on foot for months. Some are families walking hundreds of kilometers with small children and infants. They often have little or nothing to eat. The migrants know that Latin American leaders gathered recently for a summit in southern Mexico seeking solutions to this massive regional problem. Many migrants complain that Mexico is taking too long to process their applications for refugee or exit visas. Mexican immigration officials say their offices are overwhelmed by the number of applications. The large group of travelers includes people from Cuba, Haiti, Venezuela, and several Central American nations. The migrants have been traveling along highways in Mexico's southern Chiapas state, sometimes receiving police escorts. The caravan is happening just as U.S. President Joe Biden prepares to meet in Washington with Latin American leaders on Friday to enhance hemispheric cooperation on the issue of immigration in an effort to decrease the number of migrants arriving at the U.S.-Mexico border. Senior U.S. officials say President Biden is expected to announce new regional development plans to help countries hosting migrants in the Western Hemisphere and enhance economic cooperation in the region. That's Frank Contreras reporting. Beijing's down to 6 degrees overnight. It's cloudy and 16 on Saturday. Uh, Chongqing's down to 17, followed by a slight rain with a high of 22 degrees. It's time for a short break. So far this hour, uh, the Israeli military has encircled Gaza City as Hamas hits back with hit-and-run attacks. Uh, several foreign leaders are visiting China with more on the way ahead of the annual Import Expo in Shanghai. The UN General Assembly has once again voted overwhelmingly against the U.S. trade embargo on Cuba. Shane Bigham with you. Stay with us here on the Beijing Hour. Experience the musical classics of the East. Mingle with the masters of Chinese music. Music Talks. Witness the sound of antiquity and modernity. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. We then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures, and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. 
We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Deutsche Director of the International Hear the difference with CGTN Radio. Join our global network to connect with the world. CGTN Radio. Hear the difference. I love you. 我爱你 This might be the easiest way to say I love you, since there are so many other romantic expressions. No matter if you are a rookie, 你好，我的中文一点点。Or a sophisticated learner, 我来北京五年了，我是本地人。There is definitely something that will interest you. Check out Takeaway Chinese, a world that starts with 你好。Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world, this is the Beijing Hour. One hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host, Shane Begumati. On this Friday, still to come in business, the exhibitors are ready for the upcoming China International Import Expo. In sports, some bogey-free action at the 28th Volvo China Open in Shenzhen. In culture and entertainment, the second Guilin Art Festival in southern China. Contact us. You can email radio at cgtn dot com or follow our X account, formerly Twitter, at cgtn radio. First of all, checking the day's headlines. Here's Wang Zhang. Thanks, Jane. Chinese President Xi Jinping has sent a message to the Fifth China-U.S. Sister Cities Conference. President Xi stressed that the conference is an important platform for subnational exchanges, and it has played a positive role in promoting development and cooperation between sister cities. He also said the foundation of China-U.S. relations lies in the people, and the source of strength lies in the friendship between people from the two countries. China and the United States are having talks on climate issues ahead of the United Nations Climate Conference. China's Ministry of Ecology and Environment says climate envoys from the two countries are meeting in California from Saturday. Xie Jinhua and John Kerry will exchange views on climate action and collaboration. COP28 will begin in Dubai at the end of this month. China, the European Union, and the United States have agreed to work together on managing risks posed by artificial intelligence. They signed the Bletchley Declaration on Wednesday at the AI Safety Summit initiated by the United Kingdom. The three sides say nations need to establish a common approach to chart a safe course forward. Chinese Vice Minister of Science and Technology Wu Jiahui attended the summit alongside other high-level representatives. He says China is ready to increase collaboration on AI safety to help build an international governance framework. Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is, will soon kick off his visit to China. The trip comes at the invitation of Chinese Premier Li Qiang. Albanese is among the foreign leaders who attend the opening ceremony of the China International Import Expo in Shanghai. The Chinese Foreign Ministry says China and Australia are comprehensive strategic partners, and the two sides enjoy broad common interests and a bright future for cooperation. The ministry also says it hopes Albanese's visit will strengthen communication and mutual trust, expand cooperation, and consolidate friendship between the two countries. Storm Kieran has lashed several European countries and killed at least seven people in some parts of the continent. The worst affected countries include Belgium and Spain, where strong winds and rain disrupted air, sea, and rail traffic. The storm also knocked out power in the UK and France. 
Russian President Vladimir Putin has signed a law revoking the country's ratification of the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. The Kremlin has stated that the withdrawal from the treaty does not imply the restoration of nuclear tests. The chair of the State Duma says Moscow has been waiting for Washington to ratify the treaty for 23 years, but the U.S. side has demonstrated its irresponsible approach towards global security issues. The treaty is a multilateral agreement banning all nuclear explosion tests conducted for peaceful or military purposes. An Ethiopian official has hailed the first anniversary of a peace agreement that ended a two-year civil war in the northern part of the country. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs said the Pretoria Peace Agreement signed a year ago by the Ethiopian government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front has boosted the international standing of Africa's second most populous nation. The United Nations Economic Commission for Africa warns that the African continent is significantly affected by global warming, threatening the country's socio-economic development. That's despite Africa's limited contribution to climate change. Figures from the organization show that 17 out of the 20 countries most threatened by climate change are located in Africa, and climate change already impacts 2 to 9 percent of national budgets across the continent. The Indian Commission of、uh, the Indian Commission for Air Quality Management has banned construction and demolition activities in and around the capital, except for essential government projects. This comes as media reports have said that air quality in Delhi has turned hazardous. The restrictions also affect mining and stone crushing. Driving in Delhi and nearby districts is also restricted. All right, thank you very much. That was Wang Zhang with headline news. This is Shane Begum in the Chinese capital. Coming up in business, the exhibitors are ready for the upcoming China International Import Expo. From cotton fields to a garden of tulips. Join Dutch tulip grower Nicolas Geik for a chat about his experience of helping to transform a small village in East China into the country's first sea of tulips. On this week's Chat Lounge, wherever you get your podcasts, and on CGTN Radio. Thirty-six minutes past the hour now. Turning to business, and、uh, first up, we'll check the markets. Stock markets on the Chinese mainland finished higher on Friday.、Uh, Timothy Pope has more. Uh, the Shanghai Composite Index added seven tenths of one percent.、Uh, the Shenzhen component jumped one point two percent, gains that we haven't seen for a while.、Uh, the slightly stronger Caixin PMI reading for October obviously takes in、uh, service sector activity、uh, for the week-long National Day holiday at the start of last month,、uh, which was、uh, very important for consumption, and、uh, even takes in、uh, some Halloween spending、uh, in China、uh, just over the last couple of days.、Uh, the service. Sector optimism、uh, put liquor stocks back on top today. Guizhou Maltai added 1.7 percent, making it the biggest contributor to gains on the Shanghai、uh, Composite Index, and taking、uh, that stock's gains for the week to more than 6 percent.、Uh, of course,、uh, earlier on in the week, it announced. Factory gate price increases、uh, on some of its products, also dragging some other stocks higher. We saw Wuliang Yeibin and、uh, Luzhou Laojiao adding、uh, more than one percent each today as well. Their other liquor stocks, and、uh, of course,、uh, other consumer spending-linked stocks were gaining as well.、Uh, China tourism duty-free、uh, also gained; it was up by more than two percent. But、uh, it was a fairly good day across the board.、Uh, there were some strong tech and material stocks, stocks as well, and、uh, some weakness、uh, really only fell. Among financials and、uh, real estate shares. 
That was market analyst Timothy Pope in Shanghai. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index increased by 2.5%. Exhibitors at the upcoming 6th China International Import Expo in Shanghai say they've all completed setting up their booths. Eric Chung is the president of the American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai, and he says he's excited to showcase more American products at the exhibition. Well, we're very excited uh, that uh, the the next uh, the six CIE will happen in in Shanghai, and uh, I personally have participated in each and every CIE in the past uh, five years, uh, beginning going back to 2018. Uh, back then, I was the chairman of AmCham Shanghai, and uh, in the past few years, we we went through a difficult period uh, because of the COVID. And uh, the CIE went online. So this is really the first uh, CIE after COVID, uh, offline, in person. And uh, our companies are getting ready, right? Uh, American companies have always participated in CIE. If you look at the total number of companies, uh, American companies always rank number one in terms of total number of companies. Uh, based on Chinese statistics, we'll have over 200 companies uh, participating in this CIE, uh, American Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai, in coordination with the U.S. government. Uh, we will organize our own American pavilion in this CIE. Major American corporations have been there from day one, from the first CIE, and, and they are in a position to do it themselves. Uh, we feel like uh, smaller and medium-sized companies have not been able to participate actively uh, in CIE. So, so this year, uh, we be just pick one angle, which is food, beverage, and agriculture. And because CIE is, is organized by industries, so different halls focusing on different industries. So we just pick hall number one, which is agriculture and food. And then we're working with 17 partners, uh, U.S. states, different states, trade associations that represent these SME food and agriculture companies, and also a few you know, brand name companies themselves. So altogether, uh, 17 companies are participating in this CIE. Uh, the Expo expects to attract a record high of 289 Fortune Global 500 companies and industry leaders to showcase their latest products, services and technologies at the week-long event. Cuban Prime Minister Manuel Marrero has started a week-long official visit to China. His first stop is Shanghai, where he will attend the International Import Expo that starts on Sunday. And Chen Tong has more. The sixth China International Import Expo is coming, and the Cuba Prime Minister is the first high-level political figure to arrive in Shanghai ahead of the expo, which will officially kick off on November 5th. Over the past years, Cuba companies have been actively attending the expo. For example, in 2019, Cuba and China signed over 10 deals at the expo, hoping to bring more Cuban lobsters and seafood to the China market. And of course, Cuba become a participating country of the Belt and Road Initiative since 2018. And since then, China and Cuba have been cooperating in fields such as infrastructure, renewable energy, healthcare, and education. According to China's Foreign Ministry, Moraro will also meet with Chinese government officials during his trip. The ministry has described his visit as being crucial to strengthening the relationship between China and Cuba. Now, as Chen Tong reporting. 
Besides Cuban Prime Minister uh, Manuel Marrero, many other foreign leaders have also arrived in Shanghai to attend the opening ceremony of the CIIE. Uh, they include the Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, Kazakh Prime Minister Ali Khan Smilov, and Serbian Prime Minister Anna Brnabic. China's service activity expanded in October. Saishin's Purchasing Managers Index for Services, which focuses on small and medium-sized enterprises and exporters, rose to 50.4 in October from September's nine-month low of 50.2. Enterprises believe the exp uh, expansion is mainly due to an increased number of international tourists and the overall improvement in foreign demand for domestic services. The 50-point mark separates expansion from contraction. Ministry of Commerce says China will continue to shorten its negative list for foreign investment access to further attract foreign investors. Spokeswoman Xu Jueting says authorities will remove restrictions on foreign investment access in the manufacturing sector and expand market access for global capital in the modern services sector. We will work with other departments and local authorities to implement the 24 targeted measures to attract foreign investment issued by the State Council and continue to introduce supporting detailed policies to ensure that all the measures are effectively implemented. Well, since the start of the year, senior executives from major multinational enterprises like Microsoft, Apple and Tesla have visited China. Organizers of the China Import and Export Fair say around 190,000 overseas buyers from over 200 countries and regions have visited this year's event. Better known as the Canton Fair, the event in Guangzhou has drawn uh, many first-time foreign buyers who are impressed by the huge variety of products on show. Uh, Mahem from Lebanon says the fair shows a wide array of options that meet his needs. We deal with the fruit cocktails, uh, peach, nuts, mushroom and sweet corn. And, uh, I think uh, we have the chance to make a good business through this fair because, because it's uh, full of uh, opportunities. Canton Fair spokesman Xu Bing says the event offers a large platform for participants to expand their businesses. The Canton Fair enables international exhibitors, visitors and business people to reach out to more quality and affordable made-in-China products and share China's huge market. It will create more opportunities for Chinese and foreign enterprises and help them buy and sell globally. China held the Canton Fair twice a year in spring and autumn since 1957. China's light industry registered rising profits in the first nine months, signaling a steady recovery. Official data shows that major enterprises in the sector generated business revenue of over 16 trillion yuan, roughly 2.2 trillion U.S. dollars during the period, up 1.6 percent. Secretary General Guo Yongxin of the China National Light Industry Council says the sector's overall production and sales have shown a positive trend. Since the beginning of this year, we have seen consistent growth in traditional industries such as food and beverage production, while progress in the smart home appliances industry has been remarkable. Exports to countries along the Belt and Road routes have continued to grow. Overall, the light industry has experienced a boom in both production and sales, stabilizing and showing signs of improvement. China's released a plan to stabilize the market and promote new growth in key sectors, including household goods and plastic products. The plan involves uh, improving 50 light industrial clusters, each with over 30 billion yuan in revenue, to enhance the quality and efficiency of industrial development. 
China's largest liquefied natural gas storage tank has started service in Shandong province. Wu Bing is with the manufacturer, the Sinopec uh, Tianran Chi company, and he says the tank has helped alleviate the pressure for transporting gas. The operation of the storage tank has enabled the reception and transfer capacity of the Qingdao LNG receiving terminal to reach 11 million tons and its gas supply capacity to 16.5 billion cubic meters, making it one of the world's 10 million ton-grade LNG receiving terminals. The holding capacity of 279,000 cubic meters, that storage tank is large enough to hold a C919 passenger jet. That was your business news for the day. You're listening to the Beijing Hour. Coming up in sports, we have some bogey-free action at the 28th Volvo China Open in Shenzhen. Sideline Story brings you all things sports-related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world. 47 past the hour now. Turning to sports, and here's Brandon Yates. Thank you, Shane. We begin with golf, and Malaysia's Ben Leong carded a six under par 66 in the opening round of the 28th Volvo China Open in Shenzhen. He leads the field of 143 players by one shot at the close of the opening round. The 37-year-old posted even nines of three under par 33 for his impressive bogey-free round. Leong, who has 14 professional wins to his credit, had just 28 putts in his impressive round, which started on the 10th tee. Australia's Jack Thompson is in second and had just 27 putts in his five under par round of 67. The round included an incredible nine birdies. Mercedes's Lewis Hamilton and Ferrari's Carlos Sainz have agreed to a fun battle for runner-up in the Formula One Drivers' Championship. The comments were made in the build-up to this weekend's Brazilian Grand Prix. Hamilton is looking forward to the challenge. Yeah, it's a really fun, enjoyable battle. Having these guys did a great job in qualifying in the last race, but fortunately we were able to leapfrog them. But I think um, it's going to be close in these in these last three races. Signs echoed Hamilton's feelings. It's it's a fun battle, like Lewis said. We're always very close to each other in the races. Normally it's them chasing us or overtaking us in the race. And hopefully we can revert that in the last three races and at least not get overtaken and manage to finish ahead because that's where, where the points are given. Max Verstappen and Team Red Bull have already secured the Drivers' and Constructors' Championship respectively. Club football action resumes worldwide over the weekend. In South America, the Copa Libertadores final will see Argentina's Boca Juniors face Brazil's Fluminense in Rio de Janeiro. The build-up to this clash has been tense, as footage of opposing fans clashing on the beaches of Rio has gone viral on social media. In other selected club football fixtures, Newcastle United takes on Arsenal in the English Premier League. In the Bundesliga, bitter rivals Bayern Munich and Dortmund will face off. Defending Serie A champions Napoli play Salentinana and Real Sociedad play Barcelona and they go head-to-head in La Liga. Striker Luis Suarez is set to join David Beckham's MLS side into Miami in 2024. According to reports, Suarez will be a free agent and has agreed to a deal. Fans on social media are already buzzing about the potential reunion between Suarez, Lionel Messi, Sergio Busquets and Jordi Alba in Miami. The four players were instrumental in FC Barcelona's period of European dominance.
In other transfer news, Manchester United has set its sights on forward Rafael Leao. The Portuguese international has recently signed a new deal with AC Milan. However, the English Premier League club is reportedly undeterred by this and is eager to land an additional goal-scoring option on the squad. Football star Neymar has undergone successful surgery on his left knee. The Brazilian suffered a ruptured anterior cruciate ligament and meniscus. The 31-year-old sustained the injury during Brazil's 2-0 loss to Uruguay in a World Cup qualifier in Montevideo last month. Specialists have said Neymar will require up to 8 months to fully recover. This means he could miss the Copa America to be played in the United States next June and July. Rebecca Welsh will become the first woman to referee in a Premier League game. She will act as fourth official for this weekend's game between Fulham and Manchester United at Craven Cottage. Wendy Toms was the first woman assistant in the Premier League from its inception and was followed by Natalie Appensall and Sian Macy Ellis. Welsh will be the first to take on one of the roles of a referee, with Macy Ellis the assistant VAR for the game. The 39-year-old has enjoyed a meteoric rise this year. In January, she became the first female to take charge of a championship game between Birmingham City and Preston North End. Thousands of fans have lined the streets of South Africa to join the parade for the Rugby World Cup winning team. The Springboks have returned to the country after their 12-11 victory over New Zealand in the final in Paris. Skipper Sia Khaleesi said the fans' support was critical to their success. We as a team, um, we, we chose to, to dedicate this, this World Cup um, to you um, because you honestly you are the reason we are where we are today. Um, the way that you, you don't give up your resilient spirit, how hard you work, and the things that you must go through to be where you are in life, um, honestly, the other countries can't understand. So your, your support really kept us going. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa thanked the team for their inspirational efforts. You are a testament of the power of a dream. You come from different parts of our country, you are as diverse as the people of South Africa and we are proud that we are represented by such a diverse team where every one of us as South Africans can see themselves represented in the team. So it is for this reason that I applaud you. South Africa is the first nation in history to win four Rugby World Cup titles. India has secured a place in the Cricket World Cup semi-finals. The team managed to skittle Sri Lanka for just 55 to seal an emphatic 302-run victory in Mumbai. Sri Lanka collapsed to 3 for 4 by the fourth over as their top four batters mustered just one run between them. Earlier, India had a shaky start. However, Virat Kohli and Shubman Gill put on a 189-run partnership for the second wicket to help India post 357 for 8. India is the first team to qualify for the semi-finals and reclaim its position at the top of the World Cup table. And finally, Tyson Fury and Alexander Usyk will reportedly fight for the undisputed heavyweight championship in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia in February. Fury Usyk has been planned for December 23rd, before Fury struggled in a tougher-than-expected bout with former UFC champion Francis Ngannou. Fury was knocked to the floor en route to a split-decision victory over Ngannou, who was making his pro boxing debut. Usyk is an Olympic gold medalist and holds the WBA, WBO and IBF titles, belts he won from Anthony Joshua in 2021. Fury is the WBC heavyweight champion.
Thank you very much. That was Brandon Yates with Sports. Coming up in culture and entertainment, the second Guilin Art Festival in southern China. The Beijing Hour. Hello, I'm Peter Dinklage from X-Men, Days of Future Past. You are listening to The Beijing Hour. Hi, I'm Kathy Freeman, and you're listening to The Beijing Hour. Hi, everyone. I'm Lang Lang. Welcome to The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour, your window to China and the world. 54 minutes past the hour now. Turning to culture and entertainment, and Zhu Tianlu joins us now. Thank you, Shane. The second Guilin Art Festival is receiving much fanfare in the tourist city in southern China. The 10-day festival features 140 activities and performances. Notable highlights include plays, folk music, operas, and monologues in different languages from 14 countries and regions. 80% of the performances are outdoors. The festival aims to tap into the idea of integrating art into the city's famed natural scenery. A number of iconic tourist attractions in the city are serving as outdoor venues for the annual festival. Beijing has held the second summit on music intelligence to promote the combination of AI technology and music. Co-hosted by the Central Conservatory of Music and the Chinese Association for Artificial Intelligence, the event featured a so-called future concert that combined technology and art. The summit gathered experts in artificial intelligence, music, brain science and music therapy. Participants explored the future of music and shared the latest advances and trends in technology and industry. The Tibetan language film Snow Leopard has won the Grand Prix at the closing ceremony of the 36th Tokyo International Film Festival. This is the final film made by late Tibetan filmmaker Pema Seydan. Production took three years and it was his eighth Tibetan language film. The film is set against the backdrop of an endangered snow leopard that had killed nine of a herder's goats. It explored different people's perspectives and motivations regarding the incident. Executive director Jigme Trinley, the director's son, says his father's works have always been about the culture and life of the, of the Tibetan people. This includes the changes, influences and integration of modern civilization on the way of life and thinking. Swedish Contemporary Museum Fotografiska has opened a branch in Shanghai. The museum features photography, art and culture that originated in Stockholm. The Shanghai branch is its first outpost in Asia, including exhibition spaces, a concept store, a restaurant and a bar. The museum will, reopen, will remain open until 11pm every day to cater to the after-work crowd. Founded in Stockholm in 2010, Fotografiska also has branches in Estonia, New York and Berlin. And finally, archaeologists have discovered a shipwreck dating to the Yuan dynasty 700 years ago. The wreckage is near an islet in the city of Zhangzhou at the intersection of the eastern and southern routes of the ancient maritime Silk Road. The archaeologists have recovered nearly 20,000 artifacts, including more than 17,000 pieces of Longchuan Celadon porcelain. The wreck is in an area known to be hazardous for shipping, with many reefs and complex sea conditions. The ship is buried in the sediment under about 30 meters of water. Ever wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China-Africa Talk. 
Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives, and more. Get on our wavelength every week to find out what's real with China Africa Talk. Find us on your favorite podcast. We'll see you there. 58 minutes past the hour now. And uh, the forecast before we go for the weekend, Beijing down to 6 degrees overnight. Tomorrow's cloudy in 16. Chongqing's at 17, uh, followed by a slight rain with a high of 22. Last is zero this evening, then cloudy in 12. Hong Kong will dip to 24 degrees, then cloudy with a high of 29. Well, elsewhere, Tokyo is 16 degrees overnight. It'll be partly cloudy in 27 on Saturday. Islamabad's dipping to 14, then sunny in 28. Bangkok's at 28 this evening and thunderstorms with a high of 35 tomorrow. In Africa, Nairobi's getting thunderstorms and a high of 23. And finally to Oceania, Sydney's at 16 this evening, rainfall and a high of 20 on Saturday. Auckland's 13 overnight, then some clouds in 21. Port Vila clouds in 29 Celsius. And that's it for this edition of the Beijing Hour. Making news today, the Israeli militaries encircle Gaza City as Hamas hits back with hit and run attacks. And several foreign leaders are visiting China with more on the way ahead of the annual import Expo in Shanghai. On behalf of the staff, Shane Bigham and the Chinese Capitol, hoping you'll join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open a window to the world together. Takeaway Chinese, where you can take some Chinese away and experience progress day by day. Takeaway Chinese, we will promise you a difference. Welcome to Roundtable, coming to you live from Beijing. From Beijing. Roundtable. 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 Connecting China and the world. We bring you fun and timely discussions about what's affecting our lives everywhere, every day. Tune in to Roundtable, where the East meets the West, and understanding is the goal. From North to South, East to West, People in China are chasing their dreams and leaving their mark. Want to know how they beat the odds and made a difference? Footprints brings you the true life stories of their journeys. 